microaggression really is kind of a an everyday slight, uh, whether verbal or nonverbal, against marginalized groups, whether intentional or not. And so uh, it's things that they call them death by a thousand cuts. So it's like the little things that add up to a whole bunch. And so, you know, some examples could be if we take, for example, like a black woman and there's a person in the office and they start stroking a black woman's hair and like, oh, it's just so soft. And they didn't ask permission. And like, why are they doing that? Or it could be I'm the same African-American gentleman and that someone does a pre and he does a presentation. And he does really well. And they say, wow, you are really articulate as if a person who's African-American can't be articulate. The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show. The home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on in the world of business, technology, and HR. Here's your host, Ira Wolf. Hey, welcome back, Googleization Nation. And welcome to another episode of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. Uh, we got another great show today. We are going to be talking about a very, very important topic. You might have been familiar with it in the past, but certainly over the, the past year, year and a half, diversity inclusion has become much more, you know, top of top of the line in in whether it's media or in the workplace or conversations. How do we how do we get there? And part of its conversation, but part of that conversation involves, unfortunately, a couple microaggressions. And you might not be familiar with what they are. So we're going to be talking about what is a microaggression, how as a leader, how do you prevent that as, as a human being, as, as a worker, as whether you're a manager or an employee, how do you how, how do you avoid that? And and some of them are you know, beyond the subtle joke, you know, whether it's an ethnic joke or a gender joke, sometimes it's just emotions, body language, tone, words we choose to use. And we're going to be talking with Heather about that. She has a new book called The Art of Caring Leadership. Excited to talk about that. And then another topic, which is top of mind with a lot of people, which is related to that, is employee retention. Um, so we're going to be covering uh, we're going to be covering that all, all today and have an exciting conversation with Heather. It'll be another fast-moving conversation. And then after our break, for the second segment, we're going to be talking a little bit about, uh, again, recruitment and retention, but also about uh, labor shortages. A lot of people are calling me, asking me about where do we find people? I just got off another interview with Sherm that'll be broadcast in just a few weeks. And they were talking about, you know, where, where can companies go to find people? And the reality is, is that they're certainly out there. You can talk about going to different sources, you know, even under-recognized sources. It could be veterans. It could be disabled people. It could be incarcerated. Again, not everybody who's been convicted of a crime or had an incident, maybe they were the younger. A lot of them are, are excellent workers, and there's a huge movement to kind of move beyond that. So we, we can talk about that, but also under, you know, minorities, unrecognized minorities. What are some of the biases that you have in your organization? And uh, we'll be talking about some of the trends and what that looks long-term 
And uh, so we'll have a great show. I want to thank, of course, our two sponsors in Gomu, Be More, who uh, just released their app in May. Actually, it's been a few weeks and I know they're doing very well. About 100 coaches uh, go up and check out the Ngomu app and then, of course, Success Performance Solutions. We'll hear more from them at the uh, commercial break. One other thing, in I mentioned the uh, Sherm interview I did. That's That'll actually be uh, broadcast 2 p.m. on July 13th. That's a Tuesday, 2 p.m., July 13th. And that's at Tune In. It's called Tune In Tuesdays. So you can go to tuneintuesdays.sherm.org. You're a member of Sherm. You'll be able to log in and view. Uh, this is, I think, the 13th show, 12th or 13th show. So you can view some of the archives. But we will be doing the one on July 13th at 2 p.m. at Tune In Tuesdays org. Without any further delay, I'd like to bring in this week's guest, Heather Younger. As I mentioned Heather has a new book, The Art of Caring Leadership. So excited to have you here. And you just got back from a from a break, right? I did, <laughs> yeah. A, a much needed vacation. I'm just still trying to get out of that mode. <laughs> Uh, don't get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, but it was good. It was very good. Yeah. Excellent. So I appreciate you being here. So let's talk about, you know, obviously I'm, you know, I always say I throw myself under the bus. I'm, I'm an older white guy, <laughs> you know, and we sort of been taking the brunt of a, a number of things. And, you know, I certainly had privileges that there, there are certain areas of discrimination that I've had, you know, I'm, I'm shorter, you know, I'm bald, growing bald. So there, there's always things that people can make jokes at, you know, whether they're ethnic jokes or, 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 but last year sort of had this huge awareness for a lot of people. It, and, and it was sort of the breaking point. And, you know, one of the conversation that keeps coming up was a term that I knew, but I wasn't, didn't pay a whole lot of attention because nobody else seemed to do it. It was microaggressions. And then it becomes, you know, how do we avoid walking on eggshells you know, all the time? Because we got to be careful what we say, what we do. And now we got to be careful of our body language. So let's start out very simply. So everybody else is on the same page. What is a microaggression? And then also what was, you know, how, how did you, how did you not isolate, but how did you focus on this? Why was this so important? Because I know you're doing a, a ton of talking about it, speaking about it. Yeah, I mean, so a microaggression really is kind of a an everyday slight, uh, whether verbal or nonverbal, against marginalized groups, whether intentional or not. And so uh, it's things that, that they call them death by a thousand cuts. So it's like the little things that add up to a whole bunch. And so you know, some examples could be if we take, for example, like a black woman, and there's a person in the office, and they start stroking a black woman's hair, and like, oh, it's just so soft, and they didn't ask permission, and like, why are they doing that? Or it could be I'm the same African American gentleman, and that someone does a pre- and he does a presentation, and he does really well, and they say, wow, you are really articulate as if a person who's African-American can't be articulate. There are so many of these examples that are little by little by little, again, the death by a thousand cuts that over time add up to a lot of pain in the workplace for those who who show up, who look physically maybe different. different. It could be those of disabilities, it could be women. You know, it is big, it's broad, and, and it includes a lot of people. So I think the key is you talked about, well, how do we not walk, walk on eggshells? I think the biggest thing is we're not going to be perfect because there's a lot of ways we hurt people that we're unaware. And so I think we if we we need to be more aware, socially aware of what's happening with other people. So paying attention real closely to our interactions that we have with other people and how their body language or their energy changes after they or while we're having an interaction with them. If we are having an interaction with someone and we see like 
their eyes do something weird or their body, you know, their cha they change or they step back or whatever that might be, then we can say, oh, did I just like, did I do something that was offensive just now? Or did I do something that was wrong? Did I say something wrong? Because I want to make sure I correct my ways, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't know everything. I personally, Heather, who talks about this stuff and trains about this stuff, don't know everything. And there are going to be times where I do something that is offensive, but I think I'm like doing it from the heart. Here's an example idea of like when you see someone maybe has a physical disability and you immediately go to open the door, or you immediately go to help them push their wheelchair or you, whatever that might be. You're thinking that you're going from the heart, but in the end for that person, it's uncomfortable. It's a microaggression. Okay. So these are the things where well, you're just thinking we're being kind citizens, but these are the things that we learn. And I learned this too. So just know that this is not about perfection. It's about being hype. It's being about being aware about your environment and how you leave people feeling with your interactions. I mean, what you just described is, is just, it's the strongest case for emotional intelligence. It is. Uh, you know, it, it's a matter of not only understanding yourself, you know, are you overreacting? Uh, one is, are you aware of it? And then are you, are you overreacting? But how do you recognize that in other people? And this isn't about emotional intelligence, but I know there's a lot of people out there that, that kind of poo-poo it and push it away, but it, it crosses over so many other disciplines and so much we're talking about. So as you were, as, as you concisely put that, it was like, oh, wow. You just described emotional intelligence. <laughs> I did. I did. And I'm certified in emotional intelligence. So I described it that way purposely because that's exactly what it is. So I think microaggressions and our ability to kind of stay away from them or recoup, like, in, you know, the relationship after it has like 95% to do with emotional intelligence. So yes, you're right. So back, back to aware, back to sometimes it's just awareness. So other than asking, you know, I, I can think, you know, I think that's a great example because I, I wouldn't have thought of that. You know, I'm trying to be courteous. I'm trying to help somebody. So somebody needs, somebody's disabled and I run to the door and, and to help them and they, they may take it personally. It's like, no, no, I can do it myself. You know, it may be as simple as, hey, do, you need, do you need some help? And obviously some people are going to be offended by that. Or, or how might I help you? You know, can exactly. I get more for you? So yes. can we do that? What are, I know you, there, there's two things I wanted to ask you. One is you, somewhere I read this or I heard this in one of your talks or something. Oh, by the way, congratulations yep. for the TED Talk. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I, I, I want to have a second one. I want to do my second one on the topic that I actually like live every day. The first one was on like overcoming adversity and it was something I just needed to get out there in the world. But yeah. the, And so I've been talking a lot about resilience as a result of that. <laughs> but the work I do every day is on this idea of caring leadership. And so I needed to be able to put something out there that was really I understand. I, I did mine a few years ago on, on change. And it's like, well, when I do another one, it's going to be on a specific, you know, yes. the first one on that idea. But congratulations. Thank I know you. It's a huge achievement. Thank and you. I, if you haven't done a TED Talk, it looks easy. I mean, you go up there and you talk for, hey, how hard is it for a speaker who speaks all the time to go out and do 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes? It's, it's really a very hard. humbling group. <laughs> so I have really the hard. utmost respect for people who have done it and, and especially those that make it look easy. It's <laughs> an incredible, incredible task. But you had a somewhere somewhere along the lines. I heard this. You had a person. You had a personal experience. This means microaggressions are, I guess, have a deep spot, have a, a meaningful spot in your life. There was something you mentioned per personally how you were affected by microaggressions. Did I hear that somewhere? Well, I think. I th well, I mean, I think in the end, there, 
yes, I've had like little ones here and there kind of throughout my life because I look the way I do. So it's just, it's just going to be by virtue of the way I present myself. I am going to have that. My background, that first Ted talk that really broached the topic of my, my mom is white and Jewish. My dad is black and Christian and my own family wasn't happy about that union. And so I was a literally the black sheep of my own family. And I was never invited to weddings or bar mitzvahs. I never was allowed. In fact, I didn't go to my first bar mitzvah. It was another gentleman that was a team member of mine when I was in my early, maybe like late thirties, early forties, who invited me to my very first one. He had no clue I'd never gone because he assumed it because of my family background. So I was an outsider. I was, you know, my pictures didn't hang on walls and on the walls of my grandmother's house. It was just my, my other, my other cousins did, but not mine. I was not to be seen out in the public space with that family. Let's just put it that way. So gotcha. for me, it does help me. My lens, my frame of reference, it helps me in a positive way. This does. I'm not narrow-minded because of my background. They were narrow-minded. I am not. I made that choice. And I think with all of this, when we look at microaggressions, we look at how we treat people. It is about how we intend to show up how we intend to make people feel. The intentionality of it is huge. And also saying and owning when I mess up, because I too will mess up. And we need, how do we say, I, I own that. I made a mistake. I am so sorry that I made you feel that way. And I am going to try to make good on this. I'm going to try to do the best I can. And I'll go to you when I have questions of maybe like, I should, should I go this route or that route? I don't want to fatigue you because I'm saying this to, if you're talking to like a person of color, you're some, talking to someone who's disabled, you, you want to make sure that, that, uh, that you, you don't fatigue them with asking too many questions. You just got to go do your own research too, right? So to understand this, this topic more deeply, but you're not going to get it right 100% of the time. And that's okay. Yeah. And I think it goes back to just catching yourself. So I know some of the examples, and again, I, I don't remember if I heard this from you or, or from somebody else, you know, it's, it's a woman who clutches their purse, when, you know, somebody young may walk in or, you know, somebody of color walks in, you know, how many times have we walked down the street and there's, you know, maybe two black gentlemen or, or two young kids walking down, do you, know, do you clench? Do you move out of the way? You know, what do you do? And it may be unintentional. I mean, on one regard, it may be the safe thing to do, but we judge everybody the same way. And um, so there's all these incidental, you know, all these things we're unaware. You, you mentioned there, I think there's, there's five strat or there's five things someone can do, five steps, five strategies a leader can take or, or anybody. I don't think you have to be a leader. You know, what, what are some of the things that we can do to become better aware to avoid that beyond, you know, just saying, OK, be aware. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think that as a leader in the workplace, we do have a responsibility to protect our people from these microaggressions. And so when if we are there and we see it happening, then you know, even if it's not to the person that 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 was the end, the end experience, they had the end experience, the aggression, but the aggressor themselves and you you talk to them, you actually talk to them in, and not in a way that like makes it divisive or that they feel like they're being like slapped, but it's questioning, asking a question. I don't know if you're aware, but what you just said was actually pretty offensive, this person. It was offensive to me. And I know that this person was hurt by it. I could see it. They didn't tell me, they didn't report it, but I saw it. And so, you know, I don't know if you knew that you next time you might want to say it this way, if you want, if this event ever happens again. So understanding and providing them a context on the why it wasn't good. And then if it happens again, here's how you do it. Also understanding that if, let's say you have one team member who just does it a lot and he or she just does not stop. The issue here is that if you do enough of these in the environment, let's say to one person, it can get to the level of discrimination. Like you could end up seeing a case come up. 
some litigation happen. So that's, it's so important. You know, we do it for, to do the right thing, but we also do it because we have to protect our organization as well. Understanding that you, that these things can add up to a whole bunch and, and cause other things to happen, ripple effects to happen. The other thing is to sometimes the person who is on the end, you, the end experience of the microaggression doesn't want to talk about it or doesn't want to make a big deal about it because they know people might see them like as, as someone who's like a victim and they don't want to be victimized. And they don't want to do that. Or sometimes you'll have the person who's the aggressor will say, oh, you're so sensitive. Get over it. Like that kind of thing. And I think, again, as the leader, if you're seeing it or if the person comes to you with this report, you, you don't want to you don't want to get, you know, take on too much the emotion of it. You want to try to remain objective. You want to be empathetic and you want to express compassionate action. And that would be, um, you know, again, maybe either having a meeting joint with the three of them or going to the person who's the aggressor to begin with and just making sure that you have them understand why what they did was wrong and how it impacted the team member. They might not be aware in lots of cases they're not. They'll probably be horrified that they did that and that they hurt their team member. Making them aware and then helping them through like, how does how would this look if you did this again? How should you say this or how should you do this again? And then also making sure that you follow back up with that team member who who was the victim of that and say, I just so you know, I spoke with so and so I you know, let him know why this why it wasn't right or I let her know why it wasn't right. And exactly maybe how they can do this you know, differently next time. And I want you to know that I did that because I saw it. And even though you didn't report it to me, I did see it and I felt like at least, you know, I should address it or you did report it to me. And I want you to know what it is I did about it on your behalf. So this, this is probably going to be a tough one, but I'm sure you faced it. What happens when it's the leader who, who's doing the microaggressing? I mean, I would hope in that case that it would be, you know, they would immediately go to HR. They have an internal resource where they can report, you know, these things that are happening. It's going to be hard. I mean, if, they, if that leader built up some level of trust aside from this, so there was some level of trust that they built up with the team members, people on their team, then the team members should feel comfortable going up and just saying, I'm not sure if you, like Stan, I'm not sure if you know this, but when you keep saying this one thing, it's it's actually really hurtful. And I mean, here's an same, same type of thing, coaching them through it. So, so if you felt like you wanted to, if you were trying to get to this, here's how you can say it next time so it won't be so offensive to me and to people who look like me that are, by the way, they're not saying anything to you, but I felt like I needed to report it to you. If you don't have that trust foundation, which unfortunately happens a lot at work, right? Then you're going to have to, if it happens and it becomes a pattern, you're going to have to go to HR. And then I'm sure they're going to open up an investigation, which most people don't want. Most people don't want to be victims. Most people don't want to, you know, put a target on their back. They don't want to make their coworkers get in trouble. So that, that culture stays not great. But if that leader creates an environment where their team members are able to speak the truth in a way that that's the truth that could that is not always like butterflies and chirping things, right? <laughs> it actually means they can actually they can speak it up and it might be counter to what's popular. And then and it's up to the leader to create that environment for that, to allow it be allow it to be okay to speak that stuff, speak the truth. And then of course, how that leader responds to that truth telling uh, makes all the difference. You know, one of the benefits of 2020, and obviously there was a lot of strategy, there was a lot of strategy, but there's also a lot of tragedy in in 2020. And, you know, people are still reeling. We haven't figured it out. I I keep using this phrase is the plane, the plane, the post pandemic era has taken off. We're all flying it. We haven't figured out how to stay in the air and we haven't figured out how to land the plane yet. And it will be a while. But we literally ripped the Band-Aid off last year. A lot of topics that we struggled with for years and years and years about diversity and inclusion, including topics like microaggression. So there's an opportunity even for 
you know, people who may have been the, the, the source, the cause of this. They might have been the aggressors. It was just a, it was just a joke. I, know, I really didn't mean it. People are too sensitive, you said, and, and go through that. So I think there's a much higher level of awareness. And the other thing is one of the benefits of Zoom last year, although I know people are fatigued and everybody wants to go out, there was a much higher level of transparency and authenticity that it created. Because all of a sudden, you, the the leader who used to, to say, listen, when you're here, you, you can't work from home. You need to be attentive. You need to be in place. I need to see what you're doing. All of a sudden, they understood what it was like to have three kids at home and a, you know, and a dog and a sick parent. And you, you saw inside their homes, they experienced the interruptions. They saw what it was to juggle all those tasks. And so a lot of people, there was a lot of growth last year. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of, and that, you know, people for a while, people, well, I still get interviewed, say, what would you like to see? You know, what good came out of the pandemic or what would you like to see that doesn't go away, that doesn't go back to normal? And it's like the authenticity and the transparency. Yes. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. I keep telling people like all that we saw and learned on Zoom and Teams and the background that we see with, you know, kids running around, dogs running around, all kinds of things happening is data. And we should we should receive it as a qualitative feedback. It's data. And when we use that data to inform us after we come back to hybrid or fully in, you know, in-person return to work, we're going to see our relationships continue to get to go deeper versus if we let go of all we learned and we don't use that data for our future relationships, then we're going to see distance. The distance that's there is going to be there's going to be a lack of transparency. There's going to be more a lack of truth telling. We'll know less. And people are going to start to leave and we won't know why because we haven't paid attention. They're already leaving. That's the big, yeah, that's the big. Yeah. Yeah. That's our, our pretty scary. Microsoft just came out with a study. 40% employees said they're looking, you know, they're ready to leave in a year. I've heard higher, you know, the lowest I've heard is about 25% of that transition that, that individuals are ready to leave. And, and so there's, there's definitely, there's, there's an opportunity to, to keep people, to, to, you know, to help people. And this is this is one part of it. I mean, yes. people just don't have to go back and, you know, they've been away. And the first thing they go back, somebody makes, you know, a smart ass remark. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke. And, you know, and then it's over. It's like, oh, I don't need this crap anymore. And and I'm out of here. Yeah. And then it's really, really hard to find people that re- <laughs> that especially if it's a good employee, that that finding a replacement is is not easy. I mean, it's people are in panic mode for good reason because they, they didn't listen before we're kind of coming up toward the end. But I know we, we talk, you talk a lot about resilience, you know, you've been talking a lot about resilience, especially through that and employee retention. What are you, what are you seeing out there? I mean, what on, on the side, what are, what are some of your clients or what are companies doing of helping people make that adjustment, you know, creating that safer space and, and building that resilience? Yeah. I mean, I, those that are doing it well, you know, are, are using a foundation of listening as they're, so they're, they're listening, they're doing listening sessions, they're doing surveys, they're, you know, doing what I call the the cycle of listening, where they're closing the loop on what they've heard, they're, they're creating culture teams, and they're, you know, letting that feedback drive their strategy. And those are the ones that are doing it well. I think those who aren't doing it well are doing the opposite. And so they're not listening, and they're making assumptions about what their people need. Uh, those are probably the ones where those numbers of folks that are looking to leave are higher. Because, for example, 
many of the organizations through the pandemic were telling their people, oh, we're doing well, our financials are great, you guys are doing well with your productivity, even with your being home. And then when they now realize they have this entire you know, footprint of real estate that they got to put, put, put people back into, now they're like, okay, but we need you to come back, you're coming back. And they're like, wait a second, you told me everything was good when I was at home. They just aren't listening. They aren't intuitive, you know, right? They aren't expressing compassionate action in a way that can make both the business money because that has to happen. Businesses are put in place to make money if they're for profit. So it's got to happen, but you can do it with care. And so you've got to you got to make sure you're listening and using what you hear to drive your culture forward. You know, as you, as you were talking there, I'm, I'm sort of laughing because I just got asked this question. And they said, well, how do we know? I mean, what, you know, they're, they're looking at surveys and they're citing all these surveys. What should we do going back to hybrid work? You know, how, how do we know what would be best? And it's simple. Ask your people. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask, you know, what do they want? How is it working? What can we do to make it better? How do we create a better value? You know, there's a, um, I, I suggest this book all the time, not, not because it, they got all the answers. Because I, 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 one is I like the name of it. It's Humanocracy. I don't know if you've seen the book. Oh, no, no. Uh, it's by Gary Hamill and Michele Zanini. It's been out about a year, but they talk about how you need to break down bureaucracy, which is technically HR <laughs> in many cases, but many companies. But somewhere in there, to, to sum it up, it says, you know, most employers say, when, when we're doing an interview with an employee, it's is how are you going to help us? Like, what are you bringing to the table? What skills? How are you going to help? How are you going to contribute to our culture? How you and we're going to pay you for that. We're going to we're going to pay you in in dollars and benefits and maybe some opportunity. And the question's got to be turned around. And the question's got to be, how can how can the company add value to the employee? How can the how can the company contribute to the employee? And maybe it is contribute by financial. Maybe it's contribute by well-being. Maybe it's contribute by benefits. How are they going to contribute and how are they going to add value to the employee? And, you know, it's always people are our most important asset is the company's motto. You know, the employee is how can the company become my important most important asset? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, you know, that's the change around. And it's, it's a change. It's, it's a welcome change. And but it's a big ship. <laughs> it's, it's not going to turn quickly. That's for it's sure. It's not. It is not. These cycles, these 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 uh, culture changes, you're just not overnight. You got to look at looking at it like, like three to five years out to see what the impacts are. You got to be tracking it. You got to be measuring it. It's important. And three to five years in, in on this world is an eternity. <laughs> yes, so, it really is. Yes. Yeah, it can't be put off for three to five years and wait. No, no. Years. I'm saying you have to be yeah, looking I, at it. You can't expect change to take three months. Like you have to wait. If you're, if you're looking for a major culture change and you're wanting to see how it moves the needle, some things are low hanging fruit and you'll see it pretty quickly. But there are a lot of things that you're going to see it in year two. You know what I mean by that? So yeah. just knowing that you have to have some patience with it. You got to have the ability to stick, stick to it. Well, we, we talk about, you know, I talk about change all the time. We talk about we've moved from a complicated world to a complex world. And the problem, complicated world means that there's, there's, there's solvable problems and we can find solutions the, more, the smarter we are with data. The problem with complex is there are no solutions. There's, there's behaviors, there's change behaviors because it's always evolving. We find the solution for one thing, and then it's there's something else that happens on the side. And yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of intercol there's a lot of collateral collateral effects 
on the downstream. So how can people, well, one question, final question, and then we'll get to how people can get a hold of you. <laughs> I want to continue this conversation with you. You're back June of 2022. What are we talking about? Same thing? Something different? Or what do you hope we're talking about? Mm, well, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that we're just, we'll probably be talking about what happened in the post-COVID world and you know, the, did the hybrid thing work? Did the return to work? Did the, did the full return to work thing work? Did the fully remote work? Like just, you know, what did that look like? And what, what were the success factors of I, of either model inside the workplace and, you know, how it worked? I think that's probably what we're going to be talking about. I don't know, you know, what other things might pop up when we think about the DEI space. I'm hoping that we'll be talking about so many organizations who decided to kind of take it aboard and think of it more strategically. And from the entire employee journey really started to to think more holistically about DEI and not as a program or as a training pro- training class. So I'm hoping those will be some of the things we talk about. Excellent. I hope so. I hope we're, I hope we are talking <laughs> about next steps and not how do we dig ourselves in another hole. Exactly. Uh, Heather, how can people get a hold of you and where can they get your book? I would say the best place is to go to the theartofcaringleadership.com. That's the website. And you can also find me on LinkedIn and just put in Heather Younger and you'll find me. Those are probably the two places to find me. And there's a lot of content out there. So there's just a lot to take in. And your company is the Employee Fanatics. I yes. Got the website there. So you can get to all these things from there as well. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Yes, you can. Well, I know you're starting just speaking conferences again. Hopefully people may be able to catch you out there. If not, hopefully they'll go up and uh, catch your book and they'll connect with you on LinkedIn as well. I'd love that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Stay safe. Thanks very much, Heather, for all you do. Appreciate the conversation and we will uh, be in touch again soon. Thanks, Ira. I appreciate you. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Wow. So many more questions I had for Heather and I'm sure we'll get her back there. If you've experienced any microaggressions, uh, if you are experiencing those, if you've made some changes at work, it's a challenge. Please let us know. Can continue, continue the conversation on LinkedIn with me, send me an email, reach out to me on Googleization Nation. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll, again, we'll continue that. This won't be the last we hear of this, but I, you know, I highly recommend going up and uh, pick up Heather's book at Art, Art of Caring Leadership. And also check out her website at in, Employee Fanatics and also artofcaringleadership.com. And or reach out to her on LinkedIn. We're going to be back in just a minute. We are going to hear from our two sponsors in GOMU and Success Performance Solutions. When we come back, we're going to talk a a bit more about retention and uh, recruitment, some of the trends that we're seeing, answer some of the questions that I've been asked on a regular basis, and uh, we'll go from there. So stay tuned. We'll be right back in about two minutes. Hiring top talent shouldn't be left up to the roll of the dice. And yet, that's exactly what many organizations do. They roll the dice, cross their fingers, and pray for a better outcome. Hiring the right employees the first time is much too important and way too costly to leave to a game of chance. Your employees and your customers deserve better. For 25 years, Success Performance Solution has been helping small and medium-sized businesses hire smarter. They offer pre-employment and leadership assessments from typing and data entry to C-suite competence. Whether it's production, sales, healthcare, call centers, or management, Success Performance Solutions can help. Visit their website at www.successperformancesolutions.com to schedule a free demo or call 800-803-4303. 
Imagine growing great employees and advancing emerging leaders for less than a dollar a day. The Ngomu app will support your employees in a myriad of ways, from career and personal development to health and wellness. No need to schedule and hold trainings. You just have them access over 90 coaches for live virtual group and one-on-one -on -one coaching for whatever topic they need or want to work on. Anytime, anywhere. Learn more at Ngomu.com today. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. If you're not subscribed to our newsletter and community yet, please do so. Uh, you can go to googleizationnation.com. It's free. All we need is your first name and an email address. And uh, we will send out periodic newsletters and updates and news about webinars that are coming up. We've got a few. Hold the date for July 20th. We'll be holding another webinar on adaptability quotient. We also have a few live or replays that are available. One is on YAQ, one is on recruitment marketing that's available for that. You'll get notices about our upcoming podcasts and previous ones and also articles interviewed fairly regularly. In fact, today I did three, but on a pretty regular basis doing my Omni subject and we're doing podcasts and TV media. And so you can go up and, and watch those replays as well. But one of the, the most common questions that we get or that I get is where can we find people? In fact, uh, one of the interviewers today asked the question uh, of what, you know, what sentiment, what, what, what reaction am I getting from employers? And I believe I, I might've said this earlier, but it's panic. Uh, it, in, in a word, it's panic. People are really struggling because the quits rate is the highest all-time high number of people that are quitting. And it's anticipated that as people, more and more people do enter the workforce and there's more job opportunities and there's more growth, there's every day there are more companies that are announcing expansions, that that gives people even more opportunity where to select from, that the quit rate may will ex continue to grow and maybe accelerate. Just, just a couple things here. You know, another question was, which is more important, chicken or the egg? Do you start with retention or you start with recruitment? And I'd highly recommend, but well, one, it's both. You need If you have open positions, you need to become better at recruiting. And if it's, and if you're if you have existing people, you can't afford to lose them because every time you lose them, it becomes even more difficult to recruit. And, and so going back to my perfect labor storm days, my first few books, uh, almost 20 years ago, hard to believe, I, I talked about the perfect labor storm in 1999, published my first perfect labor storm book in 2004. And I would just collect all this, all these stats and all these trends about things. And, and so I put them together in a book and published them. And so I, I started doing that again. And just in the last two days. It's Wednesday. So just since Monday, started, these are ones I've collected since then. A survey released by Microsoft, 31, they surveyed their 31,000 global employees. They found out 40%, 40% of the employees at Microsoft were considering leaving their, their job, or not, I'm sorry, it wasn't only at Microsoft, but it Microsoft did a survey of their customers and they found that 40% were considering leaving their job. That's, that's pretty considerable. American Healthcare Association and National Center for Assisted Living. 
Uh, so anybody, any of you that are listening are in the healthcare. 94% of nursing home providers had a shortage of staff members in the last month. That was released in June. So that was a May statistic. Registered nurses in nursing homes, turnover rate of 140% for CNA, certified nursing assistants, 129%. Uh, some some facilities, some organizations were experiencing more than 300% turnover. People are offering bonuses. The TSA is offering $1,000 bonuses. There's other another area, interesting enough, that's offering huge bonuses or bonuses that never did before is in hospitality, line cooks. I've heard of bonuses as high as $2,500 for a line cook, uh, wages between $15 and $20 an hour for, for a line cook. Don't, don't need a degree. You know, certainly for that, you need a lot of it. You know, you need a minimum amount of education. Uh, you obviously have to have some skills and you have to have some human skills. You have to be dependable, reliable. You have to be safe. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to deal with the stress of the job, keep up with the pace, especially in some organizations. I mentioned the quits rate is at an all-time high. Oh, uh, Gallup just released their uh, annual engagement. And it dipped, uh, employee engagement globally has dipped to 20%. Over the years, it's been about, you know, famously, people have quoted this over and over again, but it's been averaging around 30%. Last year, obviously, it, it took a dip on, on a global basis as well, down from kind of in the mid-20s down to 20%. And, you know, part part of it is people are working from home and and, uh, you know, through all the struggles, but it's been historically low. It's not that it dipped from 50 or 60% engagement down to 20. It, it marginally went down. So uh, when people talk about going back to normal and creating that culture, culture is, you know, when, when at their peak, uh, engagement, employee engagement was 30, maybe 35%. And then two thirds or more of the workforce was disengaged. We weren't doing too good before the pandemic. So the pandemic didn't cause it. It made it more challenging. Remarkably, some organizations have, during that year, their engagement went up. Maybe they were more sensitive. They were having more conversations, as we talked about with Heather in the first segment. Heather Younger, as we talked, we were talking about, you know, things, good things that happened, uh, being more transparent, more authentic, more caring. Leaders took a different look and maybe made uh, they paid more attention to their employees during the pandemic, and those companies did pretty well. So employee engagement you know, and, and recruitment, it's going to be challenging for, for the next 10 years. Last Friday, I did my our monthly conversation with Ed Gordon from, the, from Imperial Corporation Consulting Corporation. Ed's been doing this for, he's been studying uh, labor economics for 50 years. He publishes the Gordon Report. He's doing, he's, he's had 20 some books that have been published on, on some of these trends. And just like the paper, perfect labor storm, he's predicted what happened now. This isn't a shock. We knew this was coming. And finally, employers have, have woken up to that. But projections for 2030, or anybody thinks that this is a blip, that this is going to go away. You're in for a big surprise. So, uh, Roxy, if you can put up that slide I have, there it is. And, and keep that up just for a few minutes there. The On the right side, it's anticipated that there will be a hundred out of the 170 million jobs that will be available by 2030. So we, we're going to experience some job growth, but the most significant percentage of those jobs is going to be uh, skilled jobs. And it's anticipated that there's going to be about 128 million skilled jobs or jobs that required skilled workers 
in the next 10 years. It's currently about 110 million of those jobs. So there's going to be an increase and the, and the level of skills expertise that's required is going to continue to increase. The challenge is, is that there's 100 million people that are currently doing mid or low skilled jobs, and it's going to require a lot of retraining, reskilling, upskilling, get people on board. If we don't do anything, if, if we don't change the way we're doing it right now, there are currently estimates of 56 million skilled workers to fill those 128 million jobs. So the current workforce, the current graduation rates, the current skilling, reskilling and training programs and development programs that are out there, we there will be 56 million people in, in that pool. So the goal is how do we how do we increase that? How do we how do we take more people, either new graduates or how do we take in current employees and reskill them to get them there? And the numbers are staggering because even in a most aggressive plan for reskilling and upskilling and training is about 30 million people that we're going to need to take out of the current workforce, about 30 million people and a minimum of 30 million people. But that's an aggressive number to upskill. Uh, through gradu- graduation, through changing some programs, workforce development, Ed Gordon talks about the retains, R-E-T-A-I-N, their regional net- networks, collaborations between schools and government and parents and businesses, and, and there are many of them in the country that are help going down into the, not only the high school, but junior highs and even elementary schools to get people interested, not only in four-year education, but many of the trades or many of the skills that will be required. And they anticipate that if if we do better at that, we're gonna ha- we'll be able to uh, basically produce uh, ten more ten million more people. But if you can do some quick math there, uh, fifty six, thirty, and ten, that means ninety six million people by twenty thirty, and that's an aggressive pattern. I keep saying that we'll be eligible to do the hundred and twenty eight million jobs. So that leaves thirty two million a shortage of 32 million workers. Now, some of that may be, we may be able to reduce some of that because a lot of the jobs could be automated and a good portion of those may be. The problem with that is, is that that solves the workforce problem. So let's say that we could automate 20 million jobs. That only leaves leaves a gap of 12 million only, I say. We have a job, we have a gap of, let's say, 10 to 12 million, and we can automate 20 or 20 plus million of those jobs. That also means that there's 20 additional 20 million people who are unemployed. And that becomes a society problem. What do we do with 20 million people who are unemployed, that don't have the skills to do the job, and they also uh, aren't employed? And that's a whole other debate. I want to get the politics of that, whether it's a living wage, whether you expand welfare. We're going to have to figure that out. But these are some of the projections. So when we talk about panic and when people... When I'm out there talking about the perfect labor storm and the future of Googleization, we're, this is the frightening part. This isn't a blip. All forecasts show that the economy is going to grow. It's going to grow rapidly over the next few years and that we're going to have continued growth through 2030. And especially if you are in business today and you want to continue to grow and thrive, you're going to have to become better at recruitment, better at retention, better at engagement, and certainly better at reskilling, upskilling, and development. We are just about at the end of our show again. I, again, I thanks for allowing me to be on my, my soapbox. But again, when people are 
are asking me about the people tree, or they think that, what's a good source? What other job board should I use? Where do you think I should find people? That's much more in depth, but they're essentially people are going to be poaching people from other companies because people are going to be leaving. People want different things out of their workforce. They, some people want to work on site. Some people want to work from home. Some people want to blend where they work, how they work, what they do, what their life looks like, what their flex, what the benefits, you know, again, pay is, is going to be a temp, increasing pay for many jobs needs to be done, but it's not going to solve the problem alone. Different, different people want different benefits. And again, it's not just, gen, it's, it's not specific to generations across generations. People within generations want different benefits because they're at different stages of life. They, they, live in different places. They have different costs of living. They have different ambitions. So we're going to have to learn how to individualize some of these benefits. And uh, it's going to be a continuing conversation. And we're going to continue to talk about that on Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We really appreciate you being here. We, uh, we have a number of great guests lined up for the next few months talking about the future of work, benefits, compensation, engagement, diversity and inclusion, leadership, technology, you name it. We're going to cover it because it's a, it's a complex problem. And we need, it's going to take a village to uh, figure this out. And hopefully uh, we are, our Googleization nation is part of that community, part of part of your resources. If you do catch uh, Geek Skeezers and Googleization, you're listening to this on a replay, up on your favorite podcasts. Uh, we're, we're on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. Amazon or Audible, you name it. Please uh, leave a please rate the show and, and leave a review if you'd be so kind. Appreciate you doing that. We're going to thank Ingomu again for being our sponsor and success performance solutions. If you're not a member yet, Googleization Nation, please, please join. Get updates on the upcoming webinars that we have in a few weeks. And next week, we're going to be talking, I'm going to be talking, one of my guests, I've got two guests, but one of the guests is Dick Finnegan, and he's going to be talking about the Stay interview. He is, he was also on the Tune In Tuesdays show with me. He was one of the guests. We were talking about recruitment and retention there. So you'll be able to get a little preview next week. And then be sure on July 13th at 2 p.m., your member of Sherm, you'll be able to access the uh, Tune In Tuesdays. Uh, and we're going to be talking about recruitment and retention again. Again, thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for being part of Googleization Nation and Geek Skeezers and, Google and Googleization. Until next week, don't let the shift hit your plans. <laughs>